Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I have a special guest joining me in all the way from the States, who actually, I got obsessed with his content in the very early days of my uh, naturopathy career. I remember researching various ways to improve adrenal fatigue or support my own uh, performance and I came across um, Dr. Joel Rosen's YouTube channel and I learned a ton from the early stages and then just continued to learn and grow um, over the years. So today's episode, we're going to be focusing in on um, specifically adrenal fatigue, um, as I know that will be very applicable to those listening, listening in. Um, so Dr. Joel Rosen, welcome to the show, man. 
Yeah, Lucas, thank you for having me. It's exciting to see you grow. And uh, I remember looking back at our timeline of of emails and it goes way back and then only to see like how successful you've been. It's it's awesome. And I'm excited to be on your show today. Awesome. So Joel, maybe you want to give my listeners a bit of a, a background about your story and, and, and your mission. Yeah, sure. So like many of your, your guests, and I'm sure yourself as well, you have your own story of health challenges. And the same was for me. I had a an exhausted, burnt out sensation when I graduated with my degree in chiropractic. And I had, my wife was pregnant with twins. I had over $200,000 worth of student debt. And those are all late nights, as you know, and lots of stimulants and caffeine to keep you going and not managing your blood sugar and just the stress of finals and, and so forth. And my wife was pregnant with twins at the time. And I had moved from Canada to the U.S. and then moved from the U.S. in from one state to the next. And then I re-injured my back, which was one of the reasons I became a chiropractor in the first place. So here I am, Lucas, overwhelmed, about to have two twi- about to have twins, opening up my own practice, over $250,000 worth of student debt and living in a country that I didn't know anyone. So to say I was overwhelmed is an understatement. And... I opened up my practice and I had a, a an acupuncturist as a patient and he brought me in this book and it was called, I'll never forget, it was called, Why Do I Have Thyroid Symptoms Even Though My Blood Tests Are Normal? And it was made by Dr. Karazian, who's a leader in the industry. And I thought, I, I don't have a thyroid problem. I don't need this book. So it sat on my desk for a number of months and something gravitationally was pulling me towards it. And I opened it up and I got to the section on adrenal fatigue and I always joke around if there wasn't a picture of me in there, there should have been because it was me to a T. And I thought, how, how do we not know about this? I, I had graduated in exercise physiology, my undergraduate degree. I went back to get a second degree in psychology. I then went back and got a training in, in, in graduate uh, program in, in chiropractic. And I thought I knew a lot, but, but I had never heard of this term. And, and that started the epiphany of like, oh my gosh, if I've never heard of this and this is describing me to a T and it's based on people that are overwhelmed and stressed and don't manage their blood sugar and have stimulants and have no energy and no motivation and drive, I need to learn more. So that started my own health journey and it became controversial because I didn't know that the term was so so unaccepted and that created a whole other problem because I was searching for help and you get judged and you, you you looked at as what you're feeling is 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 not real that your blood tests are normal that that maybe you know you're just a a, a difficult patient and that's the least thing that I was and and so it, it really started my journey Lucas in terms of I need to find more out about this and ever since I've dedicated my life to telling the truth about adrenal fatigue Mm, amazing. So maybe let's sort of get stuck into this concept of adrenal fatigue because, you know, it's thrown around a lot. There's many blog articles, websites, things like that talking about it. So maybe do you want to sort of explore, first of all, what does this um, condition or syndrome represent? Sure. Well, first and foremost, it's a horrible name. 
horrible, horrible name because the adrenals don't just fatigue and then they need to go to the French Riviera and then regenerate and then come back all ready to go. Um, they, They very rarely stop outputting their production of hormones, which we can get into. And, and ultimately, when there is a, a decrease in output that matches the gold standard of how much cortisol you need to output for the day based on a stimulation test of what would cause it to be released, if that's positive, you don't produce enough, that's called adrenal insufficiency. And that's an autoimmune disease, Addison's disease. And if it isn't Addison's disease, that's the problem in terms of there's no shades of gray. It's either it is or it isn't. And that's where we run into a lot of problems. And as far as the original term, Hans Selye, who, you know, is taught through all the university systems in terms of his adaptation stress model, is very limited in, in it was great in the 60s. And we learned that a stress, an alarm creates your body to respond, which then can be met with a certain output, which ultimately will create a resistance. And then the resistance ultimately leads to exhaustion. And that's where it created the problem of, okay, put it on the map, but do the adrenals really exhaust? And and, and the problem is they don't exhaust. There are shades of gray. And that's what happens. People call it an HPA axis dysfunction where the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary signal to the adrenals in times of stress and not just stressed about life and my marriage or my job, but stress in terms of environmental chemicals, EMFs, Wi-Fi, dopamine, glyphosates, chemicals, pesticides. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what what I tell people now with the truth about adrenal fatigue is it goes so much deeper than just the HPA axis. As you teach, you know that we have a a neuro, psycho, immuno, endocrinal, gastral, all of the systems of the body work and communicate together as a united front. Mm -hmm. And, And when we're under stress, the body has a cell danger response to be able to shift the mechanics and prioritize like we would at the 30,000 view foot. Imagine you just lost a, a bunch of income, you had a major overhead, and you could only keep the lights on. That's what's going to get paid. Same thing in our body is where our body is overwhelmed with stress. We have a supply and demand problem, and our body does not have as much energy as we need to physiologically function at the level that we need to. So then we prioritize and we say, hey, you know what? Respiratory function is pretty important. Digestive function or cell signaling, uh, your 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 pulse and your and your cardiovascular, all those things are important. But reproduction isn't that important, or motivation isn't that important. So basically, what we learn now is is that the cell danger is what happens in the body. The body prioritizes, it shifts its way of of communicating. And, and ultimately it gets stuck in a loop or the stressors continue to feed forward. And as a result, we are overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot, there's a lot in there, but I, I think the term really stinks. And I think that you can look at whatever. It, so people would ask, how, how do I know if I had it? Well, if you're fatigued and exhausted, if your circadian rhythm is not balanced, you don't wake up with bounding amounts of energy and then you hit the pillow like a baby at night and fall asleep. Anywhere in between is challenges. Motivation and drive, libido, 
not able to lose weight or gain weight. It's so multi-systemed that to say it's an HPA axis dysfunction, even that is short-sighted too. Mm. Yeah, it's great how you've actually explored the fact that it's so holistic in the sense that there are so many intertwined systems that for each individual, their, their story is going to be different. Like, like you said before, do they have mold exposure? Do they have, are they reacting to certain foods? Is that the thing that's triggering their blunted cortisol release or their blunted cortisol response? So I really would like to delve into, um, I want to look into the major functions of the adrenal glands, starting from, let's say, as soon as we wake up, to the end of the day, let's look look at the basic functions of the adrenal glands. Sure. So one of the most important things that we can teach to normalize the adrenals, or at least the stress response, is getting on a circadian rhythm that matches the rhythm of the earth. And, and that's because cortisol is tied deeply into, not even just cortisol, but so many functions of the body, as you teach and know, are tied into the circadian rhythm. So we have that cortisol awakening response by about three in the morning in the dawn phenomena when the sun's getting ready to, to, to rise, then our cortisol levels are rising. And when the sun's getting ready to set, then our cortisol levels are, are setting. And we have an inverse relationship with that in melatonin, where melatonin should be nice and high at night and low in the morning. So there's a lot of endocrine systems that run on a circadian rhythm. So when we wake up, we should have a rise of our cortisol levels. We're getting ready to take on the day. The main three functions of the adrenals, I teach people, are very basic. Number one is energy production. And that's how we get with our glucocorticoids and our catabolic nature of making glucose from glycogen and pouring that into the bloodstream, as well as when we're stressed out, uh, we have our catecholamines and our neurotransmitters that release that adrenaline. So it helps us with that fight or flight stress response and cortisol comes in and, and brings us back down to, to values and normalizes things. So the main function is energy production. The second function is inflammation control. Uh, and then the third function is fluid and electrolyte balance, which happens to be with the release of the mineral corticoids. So your mineral corticoids are, are produced by the adrenal glands so that it by the outer layer, not the inner layer. The inner layer, as we've learned, is more neurotransmitters and adrenaline and uh, catecholamines and epinephrine. The outer layer are more of our sex hormones, our glucocorticoids and our mineral corticoids. And they all work to manage stress, right? Because when we're under, and again, not just stress with your job, or but stress with adapting to all of the imposed demands from the environment. And that requires energy production, inflammation control. It's our survival genes in, in a way. And our fluid balance. I mean, if you don't balance fluid for, for very long in your body, you're not going to have a long extended life. So that that's how they play out. And then a lot of people, like one of the things that your listener will probably have heard, which is now being rebutted or refuted, is the concept of pregnenolone steel. A lot of people have heard about pregnenolone steel where, hey, if you're so much under stress, then your body is going to steal away the production of pregnenolone, which would go towards building your sex hormones at the expense of making cortisol to deal with stress. But what we've learned is that the different regions in the in the cortex that produce the different hormones 
they will have more signals or more receptors that are upregulated in times of stress. So it's not like a limited pool where you're stealing the absolute amount of pregnenolone or the precursor that would go and produce your stress response. It's the way the body's been engineered. So you can look at a, at a, at a hormone test and see DHEA dance around in a non-linear way with cortisol. But to say it's a steal from pregnenolone is, is, is wrong in, in today's day and age. Mm. So I, I went a little bit sideways on that, but hopefully that answer started to begin to answer your questions. Absolutely. So with, let's um, explain that to our listeners. The pregnenolone, for those listening, is the second substrate down from cholesterol. So starting with cholesterol going down to pregnenolone, and as you said, it can go down to either the sex, hormone, uh, sex hormones or to make cortisol um, down that pathway. So I'm curious to know, Joel. Let's sort of look at um, sort of look at the overlapping symptoms between someone with high cortisol versus someone with low cortisol. Like I know there are some overlapping symptoms, or how does that usually present? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point with all chemical messengers, mostly endocrine messengers or neurotransmitter messengers, where you have this paradox of too high of a cortisol level or, or, or whatever the value may be, insulin, cortisol, dopamine, adrenaline, or too low of that same nutrient will a lot of the times, Lucas, result in the end result of the same destination. It just took different roads to get there. As an example, your listener will probably appreciate someone who has insulin resistance. There's not going to be a lot of glucose inside the cell because the cells are not listening. But also someone that is not making a lot of insulin is going to have not a lot of glucose in the cell as well. Mm. So there, I think everything we learned, it comes from the Goldilocks and the three bears in terms of not too little, not too much. So that first stands with that. Um, but ultimately, as far as the question that you asked, as far as the pregnenolone, can you clarify your question one more time? I'm sorry, because I kind of got sidetracked. So looking at the um, the pathway from pregnenolone can go down either the sex hormone pathway starting with cholesterol. So pregnenolone is that second substrate for those listening in. So do you want to explain that process? Right, right. So so what happens ultimately is you will have the the brain signal through ACTH and other other pituitary hormones to the glands and in this case, that ACTH now will hit different receptors in the adrenal glands and, and they'll be more upregulated in, in times of stress to produce aldosterone or produce cortisol. Um, and and they're less, less signaling of the sex hormones because that the body shifts its prioritization system. So there's all these checks and balances that happen below the seat behind the scenes that we're just discovering. And so what will happen is you will have more receptor and activity to stimulate the stress response hormones like glucocorticoids, mineral corticoids, then you will the sex hormones. And as a result, you tend to see those sex hormones start to decline because mm. we only do make a certain amount of pregnenolone for a day. But I think where we get lost is that we're stealing away what would have otherwise gone to produce 
estrogen or testosterone or our sex hormone or progesterone. But ultimately, it's just the way our body has been signaled with prioritization. Mm. And um, so, so that, that what's really interesting about that is everything comes down to inflammation. When we see inflammation or blood sugar imbalances, those are the things that shift the enzymes that say, like I always tell people, think of it like uh, almost like uh, a train that goes to a destination, but then it gets switched to a different train track and goes another direction. Inflammation will do that and create a a sidestep of where you were would have liked to gone to somewhere where you have to go. And that's where we see a dance around because it's not linear. Like if you do a Dutch test result or you do a cortisol saliva test result, I don't like the staging of it's a stage one or a stage two or stage three or stage. I don't like that because it doesn't work like that in real life. Sometimes you'll have uh, high cortisol and low DHEA or you'll have low cortisol and high DHEA, or you'll have high of both or low of both. And it really depends. And I think that was the original question in terms of um, cortisol, the difference between high cortisol and low cortisol is high cortisol, you will, you, you will feel a lot of the same symptoms as low cortisol, mm. um, because you have that down regulation of the receptor sites that don't allow cortisol to be as active um, and low cortisol not being enough there to be able to make a proteomic impact on the cell. So it's not going to break down. It's not going to break down glucose. It's not going to reduce inflammation. It's not going to balance the mineral balance. And so you could have the same symptoms. Um, th does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back and explore a little bit on um, the inflammation side of things. You mentioned how, funnily enough, and this would be a surprise for some people, is that cortisol is anti-inflammatory. So do you want to explore how how is that possible when it's considered a stress hormone? Yeah, I mean, we need inflammation. So I think people sometimes don't realize that. Again, Goldilocks and the three bears, we need a perfect amount, not too much, not too little. If we didn't mount a, a an immune response, we would succumb to an illness because it's our defense and we need to produce cytokines and uh, tumor necrosis factor and all the different chemical messengers that help to histamine responses to help survive. Uh, but we also need to balance that with antioxidants so that we can have a redox homeostasis, which means we're producing inflammation, signaling our defense response, and then coming in with firefighters and bringing it away. And then life is forever after jolly and nice. So one of the main things that we've been researching now is that histamine is released when there is immune activation. And if you think about histamine, think about like your finger that get you get a cut and it swells up and it gets red and, and hot. That's a that's a histamine response. That's an immune response. And that's typically going to be environmentally. Um, that's going to be certain foods. Stress will release histamine. Alcohol will release histamine. And then immune challenges will release histamine. Cortisol is released to quench that. So in that aspect, cortisol is being released to handle the inflammation that your body is 
signaling to mount a stress response, cortisol is coming in to support that. And, you know, NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or hydrocortisone or God forbid prednisone, which I'm still in disbelief when doctors prescribe such high doses for people. Um, but that is basically what the adrenals are doing at a natural level. They're helping to reduce inflammation and helping to settle down your immune response mm. so that you, you can balance. But the problem is we're not taking away the causes. We're just trying to micromanage at the 30,000 view foot. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. Mm. So let's look at... Um... So obviously we, we know that cortisol is a glucocorticoid, but it also has minor mineral corticoid-like effects. So it can also bind to, you know, uh, the uh, rece- same receptors as aldosterone. But let's look at how gluco, meaning glucose, glucocorticoid, let's look at the relationship between blood sugar instability and um, malfun- or dysfunctional adrenal um, output. Yeah, I mean, so this is was a big aha for me, and it comes from the research of uh, Dr. Theo Hardy's from Tufts University, and he's a big researcher on mast cells. And mast cells, again, your white blood cells, your immune system, chemical messengers, cytokines, all that kind of stuff. We know through research with autistic children and children on the spectrum and chronic neurodegenerative changes that that stimulates the HPA axis. Right. So so it's you cannot separate inflammation from adrenal stimulation. Right. Um, Also, because the adrenals and the glucocorticoids are also catabolic in nature and are going to liberate glycogen to pump glucose into the body then that's also going to release insulin as well. Mm. And so insulin is sort of the tie that binds the two concepts, Lucas, in terms of inflammation causes insulin to rise and as a signaler and glucose cat- 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 catabolic properties causes insulin to rise because of glucose being pumped into the blood. So there's that connecting uh, piece of the puzzle where people will restrict their carbs, they'll go on intermittent fasts, um, and they'll eat higher fats, and they're still not moving the needle, whether it's weight loss or brain fog or energy or libido or motivation or drive, because they're not looking at the mast cell activation that's stimulating the HPA axis secondary to inflammation. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, one thing that just popped up, Joel, is um, I'm not sure if you've ever had a look at any of um, Dr. Ray Pete's work at all? No, I have not. He, he talks about how um, the system when we're, let's say, for example, we're, in a, we're on a ketogenic diet and our primary fuel source is fats, that state of being is actually a chronically elevated like cortisol state. And the reason why a lot of people feel good on the ketogenic diet is because their cortisol is actually coming up. They're, they're actually functioning very well on this in this high cortisol state. And he mentions the fact that like glucose, pure sugar is a really good dampener on the stress response. And this is, this is, and now I'm starting to see the links here between fueling the thyroid. So improving thyroid output through carbohydrate consumption, which then modulates cortisol. So do you want to 
look at the relationship between now thyroid hormones and and cortisol production. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes to what are the connecting binds that tie them together, and it's really the the signaling mechanisms, right? Like the HPT, the hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis and the HPA axis. And I know that there's a lot of research that also shows now that as cortisol levels go up, conversion of T4 to T3 or readily available T3 or increase of reverse T3 Mm. go down and up accordingly, right? So I think the priority is, is that when we're under stress, we need to we need to signal the alarms and we need to reduce inflammation produce energy settle down um, the fluid or get the fluid balance into in order but we don't necessarily need to bring oxygen into the cell to produce more atp and that's really what we're looking at from a thyroid standpoint where they have that crosstalk to each other where the brain is signaling and again the cell danger response right and we're still learning this where hey we, we're under stress. We have to prioritize. We're not super concerned right now or the priority at this point is mounting the, the energy, the inflammation, the fluid balance um, and oxygen uptake to the cell to produce ATP based on thyroid function has to slow down. And unfortunately, what happens there is we don't look at that as an appropriate response we look at it as an inappropriate response. We should be looking at it as an inappropriate continued stress response with a appropriate physiological response. If we looked at it like that, we wouldn't barge in with life sentences of taking thyroid hormone for the rest of your life, right? So, so I think that's a, a huge connection for sure. And, and the other thing I would say is there's a difference between glandular function and cellular function. I think that's a really important concept for people to understand. So what does that mean? It means, well, your traditional doctor is going to look at TSH. That's the pituitary hormone. Just as TSH is to thyroid as ACTH is to, to the adrenals. And then you're going to measure T4, which is the, active, the inactive hormone from the thyroid. And you're going to make measures on how that's functioning at the cellular level, which you just can't because it's the inactive form and you're not seeing what's happening at the cellular level. Same thing for the adrenals is that you're looking at cortisol in the blood, but you're not really looking at how the feedback systems are working or how the hormones getting into the cell and so forth and so on. Where at the cellular level, you can see that how much reverse T3 compared to total T3 or free T3 to let you know how much is actually getting into the cell. And the two aren't always in cahoots. In, in fact, a lot of the times the cells like, no, like we don't need anymore. Like I realize the brain still needs the thyroid hormone to get to the brain or still needs cortisol to get to the brain to support its function. But at the downstream cellular function, your body doesn't want more cortisol in a lot of ways. And we see that on the Dutch test. We see that with 11 beta HSD being upregulated to produce more cortisone. And, and, and we try to force feed that with licorice root or other things that the body's saying, no, like this is what we need to do. Don't try to come in with a bulldozer and, 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 and micromanage at this level when there's so many things upstream 
that would turn off the cell response or the or the the HPA axis signaling in the first place. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. The um, <clears throat> it's funny you bring up the the Dutch test. I did I performed one quite some time ago. I'd, I'd have to redo one, but back when I did mine, I mean, my um metabolized cortisol was so low it wasn't even almost registering on the on the actual you know the scale. Um, and obviously my cortisone production was super high and my cortisol was very low. And that explained a lot of the symptoms at the time. And actually at the time I was also, um, funnily enough, iron deficient. And so we know now that iron can help release cortisol. Looked into some research there. Um, but it's funny how you said that though. Like you don't want to come in with something to just bulldoze and upregulate the 11 beta HSD to produce more cortisol because like when i went around to figure out what's going on i personally did respond really well to licorice like gave me more energy and and upping my sodium intake also helped significantly and then correcting the iron deficiency and working on the thyroid all came together but um yeah it's funny how like we can uh, i think it's important for our listeners to understand why those regular you know just getting a blood test from your local doctor it's going to check that blood serum levels of cortisol you've spoken about this numerous times but can you share why it's such a like not 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 really useful to check yeah i mean it's 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 limited it does have its value it's kind of like looking at an x-ray from front on on face and saying there's no fracture <laughs> but wait a minute you didn't look at it from the side or an oblique angle Right. And, and so not everyone's going to have the ability or the finances or their doctors to be able to run the different ways that we can measure cortisol level. There's hair values, there's saliva values, there's urine values, and there's blood values. And the blood values, because, because it is on a circadian rhythm, we want to see at specific times, especially when you first wake up, because we have that cortisol awakening response where within the first hour of waking up, you have a doubling of your cortisol levels. And if you're going in at nine and you woke up at seven, you're going to miss that window for with a blood test. So blood is very limited, but it is good in terms of absolute values, right? So if I like each lab is different and let's just say it's like six units to 21 units, whatever the, the, the millimoles or whatever the, the units is, and you're at seven, you could still say, Hey, that's, and it's right. First thing in the morning, that's, that's not black. It's shades of gray, right? Or you can see if it's, in the middle range or if it's close to the high range or sometimes you'll even see it higher than the high range so it, in the allopathic approach though it's not looked at like that it's more looked at okay it's positive or negative mm. that's it that's all if it's positive it means it's lower than that six value and we're going to maybe do a ACTH test, which is what the pituitary produces to make that adrenals work. Mm. We're going to give you 10 to 100 times more than what your body actually produces to see if it mounts a, 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 a cortisol response. And after that, if it doesn't, now it's told it's an insufficiency problem. But there's a problem with that because mm. we don't produce that much ACTH. And what if people are exhausted and they don't produce very much ACTH? Mm. So it has its limits. Or if it was really high, then we would think that 
we could have Cushing's disease, and which is another autoimmunity. So mm. blood test is limited, Lucas, for sure. Plus, you're not going to go back in at, you know, at, at midday and then at four o'clock and before you go to bed to see that rhythm. So, but I do like blood in, in other ways because you can see different types of metabolites. So you can kind of see that steroid cycle and see how the breakdown products are playing. But if you were to ask me, I'd love to have a little bit of everything. I'd love to look at saliva. I'd love to look at the dried urine test with the cortisol, which is, you know, the Dutch test, looking at even a total cortisol for the urine for a 24 hour period and a blood test. So now we can really see the nuances mm. in, in that. Mm. Awesome. Well summarized. Joel, let's sort of um, explore a little bit around coffee. I know you've spoken about it on your YouTube channel and things like that. And I'm sure you get asked this so many times. Um, so like, let's, let's use an example, for example, like, let's say somebody is, you know, has low cortisol, they would look at coffee as something that increases cortisol. Oh, so it must be good. Do you want to explore this a little bit further? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And I think there's going to be philosophical differences. I think all things being equal, the majority of the problems that come with the coffee is not the actual coffee. It's the crappy sugars, the artificial sweeteners, the hormone laden, antibiotic heavy dairy products that are put in there. It's the moldy coffee bean. So those can be the major problem with the coffee in the first place, number one, those things that are going on. Um, but all things being equal, I tell my clients, like depending if you're an outlier, like in the instance where you had your metabolized cortisol being very low and you responded well to licorice root, caffeine would have been a favorable thing. Mm. However, this is where I'll give you a different question. I'm going to want to look at your genetic susceptibilities, your functional genomic assessment, because we could see a lot of things in there, Lucas, in terms of, hey, not like MTHFR is just a small glick on the radar. Like yeah. there's so many things. There's something called biopterin. Mm. Um, there is that recycling. Um, it's dependent on iron. It's dependent on NADPH, which is very depleted in a lot of reasons. Um, it's dependent on amino acids and it's dependent on your methylation cycles. And if those things are hampered, you're going to have a problem recycling your biopterin and you're not going to make your neurotransmitters. And these are the people that are low energy, low motivation. They don't have a lot of happiness or pleasure in their life. They'll say like, you know what? My life's good. I got great family, but you know, I just know like I should be happier, but it's something's missing. Those are low neurotransmitters. Caffeine could be helpful in those instances, mm. like the catecholamines, like green tea extract or quercetin. These are things that will help build that a little bit better. Um, however, if that person on the flip side has the metabolized cortisol dialed all the way down to the right now, and it's way overproducing, do I want to bring in more catecholamines? Or if they have some major challenges with clearing out their excitatory neurotransmitters, and this is where being the doctor is really important and asking them a question like, hey, yeah, I, I'm a basket case. I can't turn my mind off. I, like I'm anxious. I, you know, the least little thing, I'm like someone comes up behind me and I'm jumping. You know, caffeine is not going to help you in that instance. Mm. So it, it's a delicate answer. Uh, it's not an all or none answer, and it really depends on a lot of variables, notwithstanding the actual content of coffee, all the other things that go into it, but also genetic susceptibilities. And then environmental things like what else if you do have mold 
or what else if you do have other things that stimulate your mast cells and you have an upregulation? So, you know, a lot of people answer the question for me already on my intake is like, how do you do with caffeine? And it's like, oh, forget about it. I can't do it. Well, that's a good answer then that you shouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. You know, Joel, there's one, um, there's one system that we actually, I forgot to ask you about, and that is um, the microbiome. Like, I'm just curious to know what sort of, you know, exploration you've done in this space, like the links between the microbiota and, and cortisol production, things like that. Have you explored anything in that realm? Sure. There's a couple of links. So in the GI map, right, they do the the DNA sample of the stool and it's a PCR and uh, it's better than just the typical lab core, which does it. I tell people it's the analogy is like in the before they had DNA, DNA technology, Lucas, for a crime scene, they just kind of, you know, went with the clues. Right. But they couldn't convince you 99.9% that that was you. Whereas when you do a DNA sample of the stool, it's 99% 9% reliability that that microbe showed up. So that's the first thing. But it does show secretory IgA, which is basically your first responders that support the mucosal lining um, that will be elevated in times of acute crises. I always say it's like the border patrol. If your lands are being infiltrated, you're going to call the Coast Guard and they're going to be heavily guarding the, the, the land. So your secretory IGA will be high. Whereas the longer that breach has been happening or other stressors have been happening, your secretory IGA will go low. And as that secretory IGA goes low, your immune system goes low and you may start to see uh, other microbes show up, H. pylori, staph, strep, enterococcus, bacillus, salmonella, shigella. On the flip side, a lot of people say, well, I never get sick. I'm always, I'm like a Superman. That could be really high secretory IgA and that's not good either because I tell people that's almost like you're driving your your car in first gear and you're on the highway going trying to go 60 miles an hour like you're you're revving too high so again in life everything is balanced so secretory iga is one of the main ones for sure but one thing that we're learning now which is really interesting is glyphosate right yeah. so glyphosate roundup pesticides what they do is there there's been research to show that they reduce bacteria that allow glutamate to lower and so when glutamate is is elevated, that's where you see all these, you know, these mental illnesses and paranoias and sensitivities and people are just so angry and so mean and not nice to be around. Um, that glutamate excess will stimulate the HPA axis. Mm. So that's a, another deeper connection that we're not seeing as much anymore. Um, and then there's, of course, oxalates, which are plant-based compounds that can can really drive up your mast cell activation, which would stimulate your HPA axis. Suffice to say, I mean, I think Aristotle and Hippocrates were pretty correct in those early years with look to the gut, and that's where you'll see sort of the origin of all human illness. And 70 to 80% of our immune system is there. It's a pharmacopoeia. It helps with signaling, detoxification, producing vitamins and that are usable. Um, and the biome is always as good a place as anywhere else to start that whole trek of getting healthy. Mm, yeah, that, that, that research really does excite me as well, just to sort of see the links there between certain gut bacteria, maybe exploring more on like Akkermansia and other lactobacillus strains. So I'm just curious to see like 
you know, what does the future hold in terms of are they going to be probiotics specifically released for, you know, optimizing glucocorticoids or, you know, mineral corticoids? Is it possible for certain bacteria to even increase or decrease aldosterone? Like that, that excites me, that sort of space. Um, but yeah, I want to sort of, um, I want to go back to, there was another question I had related to in terms of the dietary principles. So I'd like to see your stance on if somebody's trying to optimize for, you know, a good adrenal, a good adrenal function, we have blood sugar, we want to keep the blood sugar stable, but what are some other important dietary principles that one's, one should um, consider when, you know, tackling this? Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback off what we just said, we want to make sure we're doing things to ensure a nice biome. And, and that's going to be fiber-based foods. And, and that's plant-based foods. And one of the best probiotics, like actually this was from Dr. Krasian, that was the book that read that, that helped me get on this journey in the first place. I think I saw him in an interview saying like, you just go to the produce section of your grocery store, pick out five different fibers or vegetables, put them in a juicer, in a blender, not a juicer. That's a key distinction, right? Because if you put it in the juicer, you're, you're throwing out that fiber, which is the whole reason we're wanting to do this in the first place. Juicers are great and they'll give you the minerals and the, uh, and the vitamins and some of those enzymes that are very important, but you're not getting that fiber to stabilize your blood sugar, to be able to help deep root your microbiome so that you have this beautiful thing of bacteria that's making a lot of things in your gut. So fiber-based foods and then rotate that. Um, a lot of people obviously couldn't do that because of small intestinal bacteria overgrowth and fermentation and um, issues with peristalsis and so many other things that, the, you know, histamines and leaky guts and permeable gut lining. But the concept that I like instead of the short meal, small meals more frequently, I like the idea of all things being equal, people say you do need a healthy protein, carbon, fat. You don't want to put kindling on the fire and just get simple carbs. Um, and in my opinion, you need to get enough healthy fats to be able to essentially create steroid cycles and brain function and cell membrane repair. That's why they're called essential fatty acids. So we want to have a good balance of protein, carbs, and fats with those meals. I know it's very general. Sometimes I look at genetic susceptibilities and some people can't process fats as effectively. So we would want to customize for that. But the other really important thing, Lucas, is not so much what it is, but when it is. And that's where we've been programmed over the millennia, in, in my opinion, to eat in daylight. Right. I mean, we didn't have refrigerators and we didn't have light bulbs and we didn't have air conditioning and we didn't have 24 hour delivery. And so, you know, we would eat at reasonable times unless, of course, we were being preyed on and we had to kill and cook right right then and there. So I believe and then there were seasons as well where there's plentiful foods available and then there wasn't plentiful foods available. So I think instinctually eating in 12-hour windows, meaning nothing outside of that. Maybe your last meal's at six, your first meal isn't before six or accordingly. Um, those are really key to me because you need that autophagy, which is basically the recycling of your cells to be able to reuse them and clean things out. 
and have a balance between that and cell growth. And if you're constantly eating, it's not helpful and it helps to set your circadian rhythm. So it's not so, I mean, yes, the foods are important and the quality of the foods and the plant-based and the fibers and a good equal protein, carbs and fats. And that can deviate depending on your unique susceptibilities and what you enjoy and what you're trying to accomplish. But it's more so in my opinion is when, and, mm. and, and which is equally as important. Mm. It's funny how you mentioned we didn't have um, refrigerators back, you know, thousands of years ago. We did have salt though, and our adrenals love salt. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. That was the preservative. Exactly. Yep. Um, Joel, let's sort of, um, I'd love to hear some of your personal, like, client success stories. Like, I'd love to know, like, has there been one particular client or a particular case that just blown you away in terms of, something strange or unusual that you found at all? Yeah, well, actually it was a, a Homelander when a, ter, Teresa was my my patient from, from Australia and she had some major challenges way back, well, probably maybe three years ago. And I remember when we initially started, there's always skepticism, right? I don't want to make the wrong decision. I've already been down that route. Why is this going to be any different than what I've already done? I don't want to spend. But I finally convinced her to get started. And she had major challenges where she said she had sort of that out-of-body experience. She was a, a, a really high-intensity worker outer, and she was going up a, a mountain. And then she just kind of had an out-of-body outer outer experience and just was surreal. And she was unable to um, really work after that, exercise after that, like going on roundabouts, she had to be completely flat. Otherwise, she was super dizzy. And she had some major challenges. And we normalized the biggest success that we had was giving her a paradigm shift of instinctual eating. You know, I, and I think versus, hey, you need to have small meals more frequently because your blood sugar is going to fall. And if it falls, you're going to die and you're going to go into a coma. Right. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And so we gave her the knowledge and the information to be able to start to get her circadian rhythm back on track, but also being able to have her understand the difference between physiological hunger and psychological craving, which you would only test with a glucose monitor to know like, why am I shaky, lightheaded and jittery and I'm needing to eat and my glucose is above 100? You know, that's that's not or, or above what would it be in the millimoles? Like, let's say six above yeah. six. Right. I think that's yeah. what it would be. And when you have that aha moment, Lucas, now you're it's like a paradigm shift. Like I'm not hungry. I'm not physiologically in need but maybe my neurotransmitters and um, my need, my inflammation. I think like this is people, your listeners are going to think I'm a little weird, but I think this is true where we have like these, these bacteria and all of these different microbes that take over our wire, you know, they take over the um, hijack our information system and make us feel hungry when we may not necessarily I'm whispering in our ear, you need to eat, you need to eat, right? And so mm -hmm. I think when you start to reclaim that gut flora and you get your body on a circadian rhythm and you instinctually eat when you know you, you, your physiology, there's other times in her case too, where she didn't eat and her, her glucose went really low and her ketones went really low. And I'm saying, okay, Teresa, in this instance, you're actually physiologically hungry. You need to eat here. So once we taught her the difference between, hey, that's psychological. 
This is physiological. How do you feel with both of them? Calibrate that in your head. Mm -hmm. So now you know when it happens and you don't have that meter, you know what that feels like. And and she's my greatest success story for sure. I hope she's she probably will be listening to this too. She's from Australia. She's from Australia. Yeah. Uh, We'll have to have to send her the episode once once we're done. I will. I definitely will. Yeah. So just um, my final question to you is um, in relation to areas of research that really excite you. I'm just curious to know, like, I know you'd be reading research papers all the time and keeping up to date with things, but is there a specific area that you're really excited to see more research on? Yeah, you know, so Robert Navio is the the author of that cell danger response. And he had a second article or second paper that really talked about the medical model 2.0, which the 1.0 was great, you know, communicable diseases, acute based uh, problems. And, and that was the, 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 the textbook for the time. But now we have so many environmental triggers that our body just can't adapt to at the speed that it needs to. And making matters worse, it's not going to be approached with an allopathic book one approach with with um, re- reductionistically trying to use these medications that are good and have a time and a place to learn how the body typically functions. And that's where I was talking about cell signaling and prioritization and reestablishing communication once the threat is lost. So I, I love his work. Um, where I think it's getting even more profound is with any research that has to do with the environmental triggers like Wi-Fi, EMFs, um, dopamine especially. I think that's a huge epidemic that we don't realize. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure when I get you to talk about, you, you know, your, your, your nootrophics on my show, um, we'll dive right, right into that. But, you know, we are all Pavlovian somewhat at some level or not addicted to devices <laughs> and, and notifications. And, and that will disrupt so much. It stimulates your mast cells which stimulate your HPA axis, which stimulate cortisol. And, and so I'm excited to see what happens in that area and how we can modify or at least mitigate or minimize those signals on our body so that we can still have the luxuries that we want without paying the price of poor health. And a supplement won't fix that, right? It's a lifestyle. It's the awareness. It's it's knowing like, okay, I, I got a like, single task here. Why am I watching TV, checking my email, you know, doing an, you know, doing a, uh, you know, doing five different things at one time. Our brains are not programmed for that. So that's, I guess my exciting would be on the research that would quantify that and be able to point it out to people and show that it's a real thing. Mm. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, um, Joel, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I know my listeners will have learned so much, and and um, I did as well. So, like, if they want to learn more about you, I know you have a website, you have an awesome YouTube channel. Do you want to share all the resources to them? Yeah, thanks, Lucas. So, the truth about adrenal fatigue was my initial website that I created, and we're constantly updating what you can get for free on that site. Um, and then Dr. Joel Rosen and your adrenal fix 
is the name of my podcast, although I'm switching that to called The Less Stressed Life. And that's out there, which we'll have you as a guest. And then uh, anything Dr. Joel Rosen, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Adrenal Fatigue Recovery. Those are the places that you can find me and um, get some more information. Awesome. Well, um, for those listening in, I'll make sure to have those linked in the podcast description and for YouTube on the video description. So, Joel, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's been, a, it's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.